0: Low Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. One more thing before I let you guys go on this case, and that is an interview with F. Lee Bailey that was conducted in the 1960s while defending Sam against the media sensation that was his trial. And again, it's interesting if you are a member of the press or have worked in a job related to media and see how much the media can actually impact the trial of a certain individual. And I mean, we've all seen cases such as OJ, Casey Anthony, Scott Peterson, you name it. There's been a billion media sensational trials. Jody Arias comes to mind. And again, these are interesting because the press plays a big part in the public perception of who these individuals are so take a listen it's 15 minutes and again it's just interesting and it's on the boot reporting from the 1960s and again the audio is a little wonky just because of the fact that it's old but it's really interesting and uh enjoy please
1: yes but uh but uh surely you wouldn't say indefinitely even if it was a trivial offense would you no, there
2: are some offenses on which you can quickly put a limitation. Perhaps it's a fine. Yeah. I, I say indefinitely as to anyone who may be a danger to society. These are the people that you're really complaining about. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that, so that uh, ideally, then, each each person would be treated uh, as an individual, and as a, an individual he would be assi- assigned to uh, the proper kind of uh, reformatory, in effect, is what is, what is involved, isn't it?
2: Yes, and the proper kind of syllabus. Uh, just breaking up rocks for ten years doesn't really do much for a person. It probably does a great deal of damage. Breaks a lot of rocks. Yes, it breaks a lot of rocks. But you can get a lot more efficient service out of a human being if you're going to put him in chains
1: to break rocks. And, and uh, this is what most of them do. Something not much more productive. Well, uh, th- th- that I think is, is completely understandable, as far as I'm concerned, completely uh, uh, commendable. Uh, even if the humanitarian. Dimension word involved, the utilitarian one is. Obviously, Certainly. you're much better off getting somebody who commits a crime at age 20 and at age 30 is reformed and will lead a useful life rather sure. than using up your uh, your wardens. But uh, uh, there is danger, of course, of a, a sentimentality creeping in uh, which has the effect of always finding an excuse for every crime. And it seems to me that some professional defendants, I don't know you well enough to pass judgment on this, seem somehow always to be angling here. Is it your position that there are people who are just plain uh, evil in the sense that uh, they do not desire to curb their instincts, and that under the circumstances, uh, uh, whatever it was that that caused them to become that way, society does need to, in its own defense, to isolate them? Well... Putting aside for a moment the
2: psychiatric problems, because that very murky science doesn't help us much as it goes around slapping labels such as sociopathic and schizophrenic and so forth, doesn't enable us to predict or cure bad conduct. Um, Nonetheless, the usual reason for the commission of a non-compulsive, non-obsessive crime, and I put all the sex people over in that area, is because the individual thinks that this is the most successful way to get what he wants. And indeed, many bank robbers make a great deal of money and never get caught. And they start businesses and become members of the PTA. Um, There's got to be a way to teach them that you can wear a $150 suit without stealing it. And many of the clever criminals would be enormously successful in business, where many of their brethren operate within the law, and every bit as viciously. And if they couldn't do that, they could become politicians.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yeah. That's right, because then theft is no problem at all. <laughs> <clears throat> well, no, the uh,
2: the requirement for any real moral standard disappears. One sort of shifts it to suit what the public is fancying that week, or at least this is my conception. Mm. Well, I think that may be a little bit cynical. It is a little bit cynical, but... I, I think uh, you like to be a little bit cynical. No, I like to put the bite in every now and then, because mm. occasionally fellows put the bite into me,
1: and it's a good exchange. Uh, the trouble is that... <laughs> As an old uh, uh, anarchist, I rather resent your using my rhetoric about the uh, <laughs> similarities between bank robbers and politicians. I feel very much deprived. <laughs> However, uh, it is it is I think uh, true that uh, there is there has been a discernible movement in social thought on the basis of which one never blames the criminal for anything at all. One blames uh, his mother or his father or the society or the Republican Party or or, uh, <laughs> or the books he did read or if not the books he didn't read and, and so on. And uh, whereas all of that may be uh, in a sense true if you assume uh, as an uh, etiological axiom that something causes everything it's nevertheless true that as far as the society is concerned the objective is to keep him from doing it again. And I think that there's, there's been a disproportionate amount of time given to that As distinguished from how shall we revise society so as to make it perfectly pleasing to Al Capone. No. You can't revise society to make it perfectly
2: pleasing to Al Capone, although it might have been possible at one stage to teach him another way to Mm -hmm. accumulate the same uh, advantages that he uh, took outside the law. It ought to occur to somebody, and the talk of excuses and blame doesn't really get us anywhere, but a lot of uh, uh, rather interesting and uh, proper feelings. I'm interested in reasons. If a man commits yeah. a crime, what's the reason? Because until you find out the reason and work on that, you haven't corrected much. But one of the reasons is that he may be a wicked man. Wicked people, as such, are rather rare in my experience, and I have opportunity to meet many, if indeed they exist, uh, people who are unsuccessful, sometimes horribly so when they commit murder, are much more common than wicked people. Wicked people are the witches that we used to burn in Massachusetts uh, three hundred years ago. When, <clears throat> with the revealed wisdom of some kind of Ouija board, uh, it was determined that a witch should be stoned to death or hung. How do you know up. they weren't witches? Well, there's very little scientific uh, evidence to suggest that they were, but uh, it was fashionable at the time
1: to attribute many of the maladies that were otherwise unexplainable to the work of witches. Yeah, but you're shifting the categories here now. I said that some people are wicked, and you've just given me a homily on the Mm -hmm. fact that the wicked people are a small percentage of the whole. I I thank you for the homily. Let me repeat, there are some wicked people, right? And what do you do about them, and how do you spot them?
2: There are wicked people in every phase of society, and probably a few more in in my day-to-day encounters than uh, in yours, perhaps. But... The word wickedness doesn't really help me much. It's like the word evil. Uh, every human being trots around with some purpose somewhere, and he thinks that what he is doing is going to make him happier than if he didn't do it. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. Uh, starting with that premise, which is my own philosophy. Uh, yes, how do you it isolate? It
1: irrespective of what it does to other people. Certainly, but people who uh, it makes don't a, a it makes a sadist happy to hit. Other people, right. It gratifies him because the sadist is sick. Yeah, that's right. It's twisted. That's right, yeah. All right. The only
2: people that you might characterize as wicked are those that are simply doing what they're doing criminally because it's more convenient than to do it within the law. Uh, The people that I have no feeling for whatsoever are professional killers, for one. But I count that man as not much worse than a governor who won't commute a death sentence because it's unpolitical, even though he has grave doubts about the guilt of the man that's about to be buried beyond all the uh, correction
1: of the injustice. Well, I think that's a little a slightly unjust as a comparison because there are governors who believe that the prerogative of commutation ought not likely to be exercised, that, certainly uh, that, true. that he, he is there to implement what the legislators has uh, thought Gentlemen,
3: was. we have a number of other points on which we'd like to touch after this brief interruption. Gentlemen, we have a number of questions that we would like to direct to you. They have been compiled by the firing line staff. Neither of Mr. Buckley nor Mr. Bailey has seen them prior to this time. I will direct specific questions to you, and if your opposite number has a comment or a rebuttal, please feel free to do so. We'll direct this first one to you, Mr. Bailey. What is your primary purpose in taking what are referred to as sensational cases? Is it uh, the money, notoriety, adventure, or what category does it fall into?
2: There's no simple answer. Sometimes it's the challenge, sometimes it's the money, and sometimes it's uh, just being obstinate.
3: I don't imagine that requires a rebuttal, does it, Mr. Bates, Mr. Buckley? Or does it? No, I think he comes <laughs> <through you. laughs> We'll direct this question to you, sir. If a lawyer knew beyond question that his client was innocent, would he be acting properly, in so far as you're concerned, in falsifying evidence to prove that innocent. Now, we must assume that his client would otherwise be convicted.
1: Well, I think I'd better give you the legal answer, since I see my attorney in the room. The answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) He he would not be so justified. He would have to make his representations by other means.
3: Mr. Bailey, are there circumstances under which uh, an attorney can justify this? None. None whatsoever? None. All right. Let's direct this question to you. And again, Mr. Bailey, how Do you rationalize the fact that you have gotten acquittals uh, for men that you knew to be legally guilty?
2: There's only one case where that really happened, just the terms that you put it. Sometimes they get a conviction different in degree than that which might have been warranted if uh, the defendant Mm -hmm. had told his all. But in the one case where it happened, I tried desperately to put the man in prison, and uh, the state's attorney held out for a capital conviction, and uh, he shot for the moon and got nothing.
3: In effect, then, it was the state's attorney who was... I think so.
2: Uh, The judge encouraged him to take manslaughter. I tried to get him to do it. He wouldn't do it, so the fellow got convicted of simple assault, which is nothing.
3: Do you have anything you'd like to add, Mr. Buckley? No, I don't... Mr. Buckley, is it... uh, We will not... We will exclude Mr. Bailey from the answer to this, incidentally. Is it fair to judge lawyers by the clients they keep. For example, uh, is it fair to speak disparagingly of what we refer to as gangland or underworld lawyers?
1: Well, let's start first with the question, is it um, reasonable? Sometimes certain things that are reasonable are not necessarily fair. Uh, I think that, that it is true that there are some people who specialize in defending people who are generally thought of as guilty. I don't I don't think that... Uh, Uh, the lawyers are entitled to rule as adamantly as they do, that only the jury has the right, finally, to establish whether a person is guilty or innocent in the eyes of the body public. I think the body public uh, is entitled to make its own determinations concerning the guilt or the innocence of a particular defendant, provided it has conscientiously searched the record. So that uh, uh, I am, I hope, just as free to say that I consider certain people guilty who, in fact, have been proven not guilty, as Mr. Uh, Bailey is, to say that he knows people to have been guilty whom he has sprung.
3: I would like, again, Mr. Bailey, to go back to our original point, and that is the the reference to the attorney and the, quote, type of client he has and his associations with dubious characters. Well, I have very little time
2: for the attorney who was on retainer by the syndicate to win cases however he can. These are the jury fixers and the manufacturers of perjured stories, and uh, they should be disbarred if isolated. But the fact that one defends a large number of impopular clients is no indication that he is a bad citizen morally or that he has low ethics. And I'm sure that uh, Eddie Williams, if he stops trying Bobby Baker's case long enough to pick up this last comment, will feel his toes curl because despite the fact that many of his clients are unpopular, he is a, a man of very high standards
3: when it comes to the practice of law, in my opinion. I'd like to direct this next question to you, Mr. Bailey. Mm-hmm. We would obviously. Well, may I just comment on that? Yes, sir. I, I didn't
1: say that Mr. Williams is not a man of high standards concerning the practice of, uh, of law. I think that's, a, uh, if I may say so, gratuitous. What I said has nothing to do with whether or not he has high standards. I'm not accusing Mr. Williams of fixing juries or the rest of it. I'm simply saying that I exercising my rights under the First Amendment, an amendment, uh, the sanctity of which Mr. Williams is frequently stressed, am entitled to believe that the majority or X number or, or however number of people I want who are defended by Mr. Williams are, were in fact guilty as charged, and that under the circumstances when I see uh, a wedding between Mr. Williams and one of his clients, I tend to draw certain presumptions against, the, uh, the, against a statement of which I conspicuously guard myself. But that I'm just coming clean for you. <laughs> Let
3: me pursue that point further. Is it fair to uh, draw conclusions from that association?
2: No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it's very difficult to say that one feels it correct to reject the verdict of a jury because unless one has sat through the whole trial and heard <coughs> the evidence as it unfolded, not as it appeared in the daily news, one really doesn't know what one is talking about.
3: You're referring to the daily news quotes or the daily news as an overall medium? take it either way, either way. <laughs> 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 Mr. Bailey we would expect to find among lawyers generally speaking a deep respect for law and orderly process now would it then be safe in assuming that most uh, lawyers who feel this way would then be political conservatives
2: no I think not uh, I, I certainly uh, am not a well, no, not even a political conservative. I find many, many defects in the law, and I rail against the system and in its inadequacy and in its archaic aspects,
1: and uh, I'm doing every bit that I can to change it. Mr. Buckley, anything to add? I, no, I don't think there's any, there's any uh, um, correlation there at all. I think that uh, uh, many people can be, for instance, very fastidious uh, uh, executioners or fastidious revolutionists. Uh, and um, th- that uh, their, their behavior in their own particular profession doesn't necessarily indicate their broader political allegiances.
3: Mr. Buckley, in view of the fact that you have been involved in a number of very widely reported lawsuits, I wonder if you would uh, assess the relative importance of the lawyer and the merits of his case.
1: Well, I speak as, uh, from a disadvantage since I happen to have the best lawyer in the entire world. <clears throat> so naturally, he influences my judgment uh, on these matters. But uh, I think uh, that probably the principal difficulty is that uh, many kinds of laws, that, or many kinds of difficulties one gets into, uh, are, are evolving so that one never knows exactly what the Supreme Court is going to say concerning one thing or another. Mr. Bailey must have had the same difficulty. Yes, so Bailey. I think that's true.
3: Well, gentlemen, we thank you very kindly. We will be back in just a moment.
0: Thank you again to all of the listeners who have helped us reach this 100th episode milestone. And of course, a huge thanks to Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for also helping me get to this point. Great words of wisdom from the Colonel. Don't forget, you can find all of their episodes by downloading the Stitcher app. As a reminder, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I will also be dropping a new season of my passion case this spring. I will be re-airing episodes every Tuesday until then. Look for episodes to drop on Tuesdays once the new season launches. As always, if you enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support them by clicking on the Donate button on the left-hand side of SlowBurnMedia.com. And that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app, with my username at bill-huffman-3. I will also provide a link in the show notes. I'm serious when I say every contribution, big or small, helps keep these slow burn podcasts running. And you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your favorite shows. Because those five stars, they actually help keep important cases that I cover, such as all the unsolved cases, in the Spotlight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as new shows that I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And again, thank you so much for helping me reach this 100th episode and tuning in this week. So until next time, be healthy and stay safe. I have one more thing from the 1960s that I wanted to play for you, and that is the press reports on the coverage of one Sam Shepard v. Marilyn Shepard. And again, this is one of those cases where the media really did play a role in how the public perceived this trial. So listen to this part of the interview and enjoy.
4: On July 4th, 1954, the murder of Marilyn Shepard made headlines in Cleveland. The victim's husband, Dr. Sam Shepard, gave police this account
5: of what happened. I believe it was sometime after 12.30 a.m. that Marilyn tried to wake me. I had fallen asleep on the living room couch. I think she asked me to come up to bed. The next thing I knew, Marilyn was screaming or moaning my name. I jumped off the couch and ran upstairs. I thought I saw a white form standing in our bedroom. Then, I think I was struck from behind and knocked out. When I came to, I went over to where Marilyn was. I felt she was gone. I believe I then rushed into our son Chip's room. After seeing him, I came to the conclusion he was unharmed. As I came out of Chip's room, I thought I heard a noise downstairs. Farted a figure near the outside door, and I chased it down the path toward the beach. I tackled this individual from behind. Then I felt as if I had been twisted or choked. That's all I remember. The next thing I knew, I staggered to my feet in the water. Somehow, I made it back up the stairs. I guess I thought I would wake up and find it was all a horrible dream. All I know is that eventually, I somehow realized this was real. Three
4: months later, Cleveland newspapers publish news of Sam Shepard's trial for murder. Since the day of the murder, the news media have published and broadcast both news and opinions about the case. This is their right under the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Bill of Rights, which guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. But the Bill of Rights also guarantees, in the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments that a person accused of a serious crime shall have a trial by an impartial jury with due process of law. In the Shepard case, the rights of the press and the rights of the accused are destined to meet in a head-on collision. Meanwhile, all of Cleveland
6: awaits an answer
4: to the question that has gone unanswered for three months. Who,
6: in the early morning hours of July 4th, murdered Marilyn Shepard? Was it her husband, Sam Shepard, as the state charges? Or was it a
4: mysterious, bushy-haired intruder, as claimed by Dr. Shepard? The uncertainty had begun on the day of the murder. Police, searching the Shepard house and grounds, failed to find the murder weapon. Investigators do find signs of an attempted burglary. But they suspect that Shepard has committed the murder himself and staged a burglary as a cover-up. Sam Shepard is taken by his brother to the Bayview Osteopathic Hospital which is operated by Dr. Richard A. Shepard, Sam's father. Shepard is questioned by police while in the hospital. One investigator flatly accuses him of the murder. Noted criminal lawyer, William Corrigan, is retained by the Shepard family to protect Sam's interests. Accompanied by a police guard, Sam leaves the hospital to attend his wife's funeral. With no charges formally pressed against him, Dr. Shepard returns to his practice. Growing impatient, the Cleveland Press runs an editorial urging police to take action against the prime suspect. Four days later, a front-page editorial increases pressure on the police. The following day, the press devotes most of its front page to the case. An editorial addressed directly to the county coroner, Dr. Gerber, urges an immediate inquest. The next day, an inquest begins. To accommodate the crowds... The inquest is held in the gymnasium of a local high school. Newspaper reports are extensive. Shepard is questioned about a romantic involvement with another woman. He denies the inference. On the last day of the inquest, Shepard's lawyer is removed for objecting to the circus atmosphere of the proceedings. The next day, the woman linked to Shepard is brought to Cleveland by police. Her story will prove that Shepard lied under oath. Shepard will later claim he lied to protect her reputation. Four days later, Shepard is arrested. He is indicted by a grand jury and ordered to stand trial. In mid-October, the trial begins in a barrage of publicity. Presiding is Judge Edward Blythin, who is running for reelection to the bench next month. Chief prosecutor is John Mahon, also a candidate in the coming elections. Shepard's lawyer, William Corrigan, asks for a postponement and change of venue, saying it is impossible for Shepard to get a fair trial in Cleveland. Judge Blythen withholds ruling on the motion, says the trial will go on if the attempt to select a jury is successful. In ten days, a jury is selected, and the trial begins. The jurors are not kept in seclusion, but are allowed to go home at the end of each session. Perhaps they read newspaper articles like this one which suggest that if Marilyn could speak, she would name Sam as her slayer. The trial, with the state building its case solely on circumstantial evidence, continues for nine weeks. Newspapers headline Coroner Gerber's theory that the murder weapon was a surgical instrument. This theory, never proved but widely publicized, is damaging to Dr. Shepard. Witnesses for both sides are photographed and interviewed freely by newsmen. Rumors and gossip, not admissible in court, are published. In the November elections, both Prosecutor Mahon and Judge Blython win. By now, everyone associated with the case has become a celebrity in Cleveland. Uh, Would you tell us your impression of
5: Dr. Sam? Well, of course, it's always very difficult to give uh, a full impression of a defendant when you've only heard his voice really once, uh... Uh, he hasn't testified yet at his own trial, as expected that he will, and I can only judge him from the very external externals. Uh, he's extremely good-looking. I think he's better looking in the flesh than he is in his pictures. I've been asked by friends when I've gone back to New York what he's really like and who he really looks like, and I say that in profile he greatly resembles Marlon Brando, and in full face he reminds me of Henry Fonda.
7: Why, uh, The man is completely unemotional. He says that someone came into the house while he was sleeping on a downstairs couch, and that that someone killed his wife and twice knocked him unconscious. He has no idea what time this took place. Uh, He does not know how long he was unconscious on either occasion. The uh, state says that his motive for murder was his love for another woman, that he wanted to get rid of his wife so he could marry this other woman. Uh, until the defense has had an opportunity to attempt to refute this, uh, we must conclude that the state has made out uh, what the jury could accept as motive.
4: Finally, the case goes to the jury.
7: We the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn, do find the defendant Sammy Shepard not guilty of murder in the
4: first degree, but guilty of murder in the second degree, James C. Byrd Foreman. On the day of the verdict, Cleveland newspapers print thousands of extra copies, sell them all. A defense motion for a new trial is denied. Judge Blython contends the publicity surrounding the trial did not violate the rights of the defendant the Cleveland Press runs a final editorial. Six months after his conviction, Shepard is transferred from the county jail. Since the trial, his mother has taken her own life. His father has succumbed to illness. Now, Shepard begins his life sentence as prisoner number 98860 in the Ohio State Penitentiary. In prison, Shepard meets regularly with his family and lawyers. Many appeals are made for a new trial, but they are all denied six years pass. Finally, in 1961, the Shepard family hires a young Boston lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, to continue their efforts to free Sam. I read the trial record and I met Dr. Sam and I felt that he was
2: innocent. It just didn't seem right to let an innocent man languish away in prison without even trying to get him out. We filed what is called a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, which asks that he be released because his constitutional rights had been violated. And it came on before Federal Judge Carl A. Weinman in southern Ohio. Some of the things that he found to be constitutional defects in that trial included a lot of pretrial publicity that he thought was most unfair and probably preconditioned the jurors. He found that the judge who heard the case was a prejudiced man, had not been fair to Sam at all, and furthermore, that he didn't keep control of his courtroom, that newsmen were bouncing up and down like jacks in the box and taking pictures of jurors, and kibitzing and making noise and destroying what we like to think is the decorum of a criminal trial. On these grounds, he termed the Shepherd conviction a mockery of justice and released him in ten thousand dollars bail, pending action by the state. I
6: would briefly describe your recent experience in the Ohio penitentiary, what it was like there for you?
7: It was hell. Who do you think is most responsible for the what you consider to be the unjust decision in 1954? Well, I would say uh, politics, probably. Uh, now, the, the, the decision, name names. Would you like to? I think that... Uh, well, I, I think in view of the fact that we anticipate litigation here and that Sam will be a party to
2: it, it's probably best if questions of that sort are of directed to me. I think that we can answer your question by reading from Judge Weinman's opinion that the newspapers generally and the Cleveland press in particular was horribly prejudicial before and during the trial to the extent that it would have been impossible to assemble
7: a fair jury under any conditions. How much does it cost you? Ten years. or oh, in money, sir. So, money could not possibly right. repay me for my mother's life. How much would it cost to bring her back? My
4: father. My father-in-law. A few days after his release, Shepard marries Arianne Tevin-Johans, a German girl who had begun a correspondence with him while he was in prison. On a trip to New York, they are mobbed by newsmen. Mr. Shepard, how do you decide you're in love with a man who's in prison?
5: Um, well, that's why I came to the States, to find out
7: if I really was in love, because you couldn't tell by somebody you have never met. And uh, how many meetings did they take before you did decide? Uh... It was the first moment I walked into the visiting room. How does freedom feel to you, sir? Ecstatic.
8: Mr. Bailey, how can a man be in jail ten years and just now be proven innocent or be released from jail? Because our system has some serious flaws in it.
7: How do you explain his conviction in the first place?
8: Uh,
2: It was a result, according to Judge Weinman, and in my opinion, of mass hysteria generated by an overzealous press. Was politics involved in this in any way? It was to the extent that the elected officials who had something to do with Sam's conviction uh, were very zealous to get public approval of their actions.
8: Were you in on the case at the beginning? No, I've only been a
2: lawyer for four years. He's been in jail for ten. Almost a year later, the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled by a two-to-one majority that Judge Weinman had been wrong, that Sam should not have been let out of jail, and that his so-called constitutional violations were not really that serious after all. I was able to persuade the court to leave Sam Shepard out on bond while we went to the United States Supreme Court. I felt that the issues were large enough and serious enough and applied to enough defendants in enough cases so that that court would want to decide the case and that if it did decide the case it would do
4: so favorably to Dr. Sam. In the winter of 1965, The United States Supreme Court hears the case. Bailey presents the arguments for Shepard. Arguing the case for the state of Ohio is William Saxby, Attorney General of Ohio. We argued that uh, even though
6: the publicity had been bad, that the jury had not been prejudiced, that they were a normal jury, that the trial was conducted by the judge in an orderly manner, that the judge was impartial, and that the uh, conviction... Uh, was a fair conviction. In other words, that uh, Sam Shepard had been, been uh, found guilty by a jury, that this jury system was not perfect, but it was the best means ever devised by man
4: to determine guilt and innocence. The Supreme Court weighs both arguments. Meanwhile, controversy over the case continues.
6: Well, the, the paper did not play prosecutor, in my opinion... The, uh, the paper did uh, respond to the uh, thoughts of a good number of people in the community, of a good number of uh, law enforcement agencies in the community. What was that thought? To the effect that uh, this was a case in which uh, uh, police activity was not being carried out in the degree to which it would have been carried out had the individuals in the case been less prominently placed in the community.
7: It's pretty hard for one voice to overcome millions of voices represented by the circulation of huge newspapers, of course.
6: I believe the Page One editorials came about after uh, a good number of people in the community, uh, a good number of people uh, um, outside of this community even, uh, some uh, law enforcement people in this community, Got the idea, the thought, uh, right or wrong, that uh, an attempt was being made by certain individuals to, in the vernacular, uh, cover up of what had happened in the Shepherd home on the morning of July 4th,
7: 1954. As I look back, and as Ariane straightened out my thinking a little bit on this, I couldn't blame people in, for instance, New York or Chicago, for taking and uh, respecting the wire releases from Cleveland because they're used to this. And they didn't have any basis of disbelief until some of the men and women came to the trial, and people like Paul Holmes, Dorothy Kilgallen, many others, a lot of local people, news people, television people, realized what a phony thing it was and how I was absolutely... Uh, not proven guilty, and railroaded. And it and wasn't until this happened that uh, some objectivity entered the picture of uh, news media.
4: And it was too late by then. Twice before, the Supreme Court has refused to review the Shepherd conviction. Now, in 1966, 12 years after the trial, the court hands down a 29-page unanimous decision with one justice abstaining. Here are portions of that decision. Bearing in mind the massive pre-trial publicity, the judge should have adopted stricter
8: rules governing the use of the courtroom by newsmen. Secondly, the court should have insulated the witnesses. All the newspapers apparently interviewed prospective witnesses at will, and in many cases disclosed their testimony. Thirdly... The court should have made some efforts to control the release of leads, information, and gossip to the press from police officers and the counsel for both sides. Much of the information thus disclosed was inaccurate, leading to groundless rumor and confusion. In addition, reporters who wrote or broadcasted prejudicial stories could have been warned of the impropriety of publishing material not introduced in the proceedings. In this manner... Shepard's right to a trial free from outside interference would have been given added protection without corresponding curtailment of the news media. The Shepard jurors were allowed to go their separate ways outside of the courtroom without adequate directions not to listen to anything concerning the case. Moreover, the jurors were thrust into the role of celebrities by the judge's failure to insulate them from reporters and photographers. The numerous pictures of the jurors with their addresses... Expose them to expressions of opinion from both pranks and friends. Where there is a reasonable likelihood that prejudicial news prior to a trial will prevent a fair trial, the judge should continue the case until the threat abates, or transfer it to another county not so permeated with publicity. Since the state trial judge did not fulfill his duties to protect Shepard from the inherently prejudicial publicity which saturated the courtroom... The case is remanded to the district court with instructions to order that Shepard be released from custody unless
4: the state puts him to his charges again within a reasonable time. It is so ordered. Four months later, a retrial is held in the same building where Shepard was found guilty 12 years before. Once again, the state seeks to prove him guilty of murder. F. Lee Bailey defends Shepard. This time, the attitude of the court reflects the new Supreme Court ruling. In order to conduct this trial,
2: I deem it's necessary that there be no cameras or sound equipment of any sort on the second
6: floor of the courthouse nor the third floor of the courthouse. This will be
4: journalized, and any violation thereof will be considered a contempt of court and handled accordingly. The trial lasts three weeks. The jury deliberates eight hours. Sam Shepard is found not guilty.
8: Okay, guys, clear out. See How about... He jumped almost before the verdict. Looked almost before, was Hey, Sam. Get the hell
6: out of the way. Give him a chance.
7: And from the top of the courthouse group of uh, female inmates in the jail there shouting encouragement, cheering. Sam Shepard and his wife, Ariane
4: found not guilty by a jury of seven men and five women. Uh, in the end, Sam Shepard's victory proved limited. The murder of his wife, Marilyn, remained unsolved in a matter of continuing controversy. His second wife sued for divorce less than three years later. Yet out of these unhappy events, something of value was gained. Following the Supreme Court rulings, both the press and the bar adopted new rules controlling publicity in criminal cases. Are you kidding? Freedom of the press and the right to a fair trial, both essential in a free society, were now more equally protected.
7: What's your reaction right now? Is your client's not guilty. Uh, give us your thoughts, please. My
2: reaction is that the system has paid off. Does that mean you won't seek any further payment by way of moral claim for 10 years in prison? It means nothing of the sort. This was a criminal charge. The defendant's been found not guilty, and I think that's what he should have been found. You're going to seek compensation from the state for the 10 years by way of moral claim. Well, if it is improper to publicize a criminal case before trial, it's equally improper to publicize a civil
7: case. Come on, watch that camera. My leg. Oh, my
6: foot! Get off my foot! All right, hey, Doctor Sam, carry uh, and turn around here and give him.
7: Yeah, give the beard yeah, all right. all right. You know the beard. Nice, nice, Yeah, he's One
6: more. He's oh, all that's all right. great.
0: Thank you guys so much for tuning in again this week. I do appreciate it. As always, you know I drop new episodes every Friday, and this week there was a dump of a few episodes which were related to the Sam Shepard Marilyn Shepard case again this is a case of the media overstepping their boundaries and eventually freeing a potentially guilty man now again this movie The Fugitive was loosely based off of Sam Shepard but very loosely so thank you so much again for tuning in this week you know you can follow me on Instagram at slow underscore burn media and that's slo so minus the w or you can follow me on twitter at bill huffman three if you're interested to know what's coming down the pike so again as always until next time stay healthy once again thank you so much for tuning in this week i know that these are some interesting cases if you want to do some more research uh, cleveland state university has a very deep deep well of information on the Shepard case so you can go online and find some information about the Sam Shepard case and the coverage by the Cleveland Press and again this is a very interesting case one that is unsolved remains unsolved and I don't know if we will ever find resolution but thank you so much again for tuning in and as you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. So, as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe.
6: Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that plus. We will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.
8: I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com.